Hey, City of Champion listeners, welcome back to the podcast for another very special edition of the show co-hosted by my good friend, Derek Stone. But before I tell you about today's guests, let me tell you that City of Champions is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And this episode is brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, your source for curiosity-driven coverage of our city cultivated by the community. Taproot publishes weekly roundups on a variety of topics, including media, food, tech, health innovation, arts, music, regional news, business, and city council. Taproot's curators gather up the headlines and happenings on these files and deliver them right to your inbox. You can get one or two for free. If you want more, you can become a Taproot member. Then you can get as many as you want, plus other perks for just 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. Get informed at taprootedmonton.ca. Our guest today, and I'm very excited about this one because I've held on to this for almost a year. Um, he's done everything you can do in the entertainment industry. Rick Bronson is an award-winning comedian. He was a TV host, writer, a producer. And if you don't know him from any of that, then you should absolutely know him because of the legendary comedy club in West Edmonton Mall that bears his name. Rick Bronson's The Comic Strip. Rick is a wickedly funny dude, and he's got some incredible and hilarious stories from his days on the Comet Circuit. So let's get right into it. Please give it up for the one, the only, Rick Bronson. Rick, thanks so much for joining Derek and I today. My pleasure, Shane. The comic strip in West Ed. Great digs you have here. Thanks. Actually, I do like this room a lot. This was our original showroom, our first comedy club, and um, I still think the way the space is set up is so conducive to comedy, and it's one of a, it's uh, it's still a favorite stage to get up on, without question. So that's great. To be able to say that 15 years after the fact is pretty cool. You've built up quite a comedy empire, some people call it. Well, I appreciate that analogy. I'd like to think that I'm still just in the genesis of the building stages. I just think it takes that long to build yourself a career or build yourself a quote-unquote empire, as you say it. Um, Look, at the end of the day, um, my goal in comedy now is just to... uh, I'd like that when I'm finished, when all is said and done and I am uh, six feet under, that people remember that uh, both myself and my wife were so pro-comedy and pro-the art and pro-the genre that somehow in some small way we're remembered for that and uh, moving the comedy industry forward. You know, uh, we're we're far from being comedy club owners in the respect that uh, we just sell tickets and try to push booze. We really produce the art and love the art. So um, I'm glad that I still have that passion, believe it or not. Now I'm going to date myself for you boys. You guys are much younger. I am 50 years old, and I've been doing this, by the way, for since I'm 12. So 38 <laughs> years, and I, I still like entertaining. Yeah, but for those who can't see us since we're only audio, you've still got a full head of hair, so k- kudos You're to you. are being far too kind, because I'd like to think <laughs> I have a... great style, a I've, I've got a I've got a pretty good Klingon uh, forehead moving in there quickly, boys. <laughs> no, so they call it a five head. Is it a five head? Is that <laughs> what they got, call I got, it? I got one of them. You got a five yeah, head yeah, coming yeah, in? Yeah. All right, well, then if you two have five heads, I guess mine is a six head, because <laughs> I have definitely one on you, boys. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, when I was probably your guys' age, mm-hmm. and I thought of the age of fifty, to me that was archaically old. Yeah. And now, as I am fifty, 
I don't feel much different than I did in my 20s as far as my mindset goes. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly a lot more knowledgeable, maybe a little wiser, but that's something that just comes with age and experience. Uh, But yeah, now in retrospect, I I feel so foolish for thinking all of my parents' friends were so old. I (laughs) mean, yeah, I mean, this might be the last time I ever see them. I should probably. It's been really good knowing you. I mean, seeing you again. I should probably give you a hug or something. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But yeah, I still feel relatively young, so um, that's why I say we're still very much at the genesis. We have a lot of things going right now where we're trying to expand the amount of rooms that we have, open up more clubs across uh, Canada and the U.S., and um, and that's just the performance side. Uh, we also uh, represent talent and have a management side to the industry. And I think what's interesting from, uh, you know, and I know this is more of a national audience, but considering that the three of us are all Edmonton boys here, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of cool that this small little city of Edmonton, Alberta, the most major city in North America, you know, or maybe the globe, I think, if you include Russia, might be the largest, most populated northern uh, city. Um, It's uh, astonishing to me that uh, this oil and gas town full of blue collar, hardworking guys and gals is able to produce some real great creative uh, uh, entertainment from all different genres, not just comedy, but you look at what you guys are doing in the podcast world, like you guys are telling me you're doing three and four podcasts between you guys. I mean, <laughs> who would have thought a couple of Edmonton boys, right, are, uh, are doing these types of things. So I, I like that. It makes me kind of proud, actually, to wear my, wave my Edmonton flag. Yeah. That being said, you're not going to see me in an Oilers jersey, so settle down, Edmonton. <laughs> now you're a Habs fan, I I've it. always been a Habs fan, born and raised boy. in Montreal, man, absolutely. Have when you found you- any good smoked meat out here? I've found passable smoked meat. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's all right. Let's kill that. Everyone gets a couple. I have found passable smoked meat in uh, Edmonton, uh, but I won't say... It's so tough to compare. I mean, I, I, I am not a food snob, but I'm a food snob. So let me explain. In other words, I don't need caviar and high-end cuisine, but I will tell you where the best club sandwich is, yeah. the best cheeseburger, the best fries. And unfortunately, growing up in a city like Montreal, mm-hmm. and fortunately, I was so spoiled with some of the best cuisine you have ever had. Mm-hmm. To a point that the first time I traveled Europe and everyone told me how I was going to be blown away by the food in Europe, mm-hmm. and it was tremendous, phenomenal, but I still found myself going... It's not as good as Montreal. It's yeah. not, and it wasn't me being a homer. Yeah. It was just my palate, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, Edmonton to me, look, there's been a lot of, there's been a recent push in the last 10 years to see a lot of independent restaurants open up that aren't part of these massive chains. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, but uh, on a global scale, when you can compare Edmonton restaurants to that of a San Francisco, Montreal, New York, Chicago, New Orleans, mm-hmm. uh, it's still, it's it's tough. I mean, we're just not that culture. We're a culture that's real happy eating a big thing of nachos yeah. and pub food and bar food and well, things I think part like that. of it is we don't have the population to support enough um, trial and error, right? Like we've got people doing really progressive things, but we don't have a population of two, three, four million that, 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 that supports being able to that, go that. out on a niche and a whim and say, hey, let's try this, you know, this non and, and new type of thing from India. That's right? very much part of it without question. But I, I mean, you know, the other part is uh, it's very difficult for independent restaurants to open in markets like Edmonton. And I'll tell you why. I mean, when your minimum wage is $15.50, mm-hmm. um, it's tough for the local mom and pop to operate a restaurant when your wages are all 
you know, double-digit wages. Yep. There was a time in life when anyone could open a restaurant because the jobs, you know, most of the servers are bus people, uh, with the exception of the cooks. It was stepping stone positions. These were, were kids in high school or college, and it was just part-time jobs, and it was supposed to get them into the workforce. But now that we're trying to create this living wage for everyone, regardless of what their occupation is, right. um, whereas I'm still a bit old school in that, I firmly believe that, Maybe there should be jobs that force you into getting a taste for some money, but then force you into, all right, what is my vocation going to be now? What am I going to do to make more money? Yeah. As opposed to just saying, let's create a living wage so they can remain a server for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, yeah, everyone, knows, pretty, right? everyone knows you've worked that shitty job when you were younger that makes you appreciate as soon 100%. as you get a better job. I remember I quit. I worked at Dairy Queen in grade 12, and I quit because I asked my manager for a raise after being there for a year, and he's like, thought about it. And what I'm going to offer you is 25 cents an hour raise. And I was like, I quit. See ya. I'm out of here. Like, are you kidding me? What were you expecting at that point, though? Were you waiting to hear a dollar out of the guy? Like, what what, what was the figure that would have made you stay? To be honest, I was like 16, 17 and really hadn't thought that far. But I knew to me intuitively 25 cents was Was bullshit. Was not enough of a raise. I'd been there a year, right? So it's like I was one of the guys I had keys to the shop and whatever. So, you know, a buck, I think I would have thought about it. But 25 cents made it real easy for me to get out. Say, I'm God. What if he offered you like Mama Burgers? Not Mama Burger, but like Dairy Queen Burger. That's saying that. Daily, Fuck. Da- daily, Maybe yeah. he would have stayed had they yeah. got him a better job at A and W. You're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it incentivized. I worked at Moxie's and it was five ninety an hour and two dollar tip out. And I was a bus boy. And back then, the guy like just hired me. He's like, you walk. I walked in. I was wearing. A, I remember I was wearing a black. Uh, gap turtleneck. I had curly Justin Timberlake hair. What the Walked fuck? in. And now you got the five heads. So yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all. It's Sorry, right. I went so. from Jufro to this. If it <laughs> makes you feel any better. Well, I know where I'm going. Then I'm happy with that. I uh, yeah worked there for for a number of uh, for a number of months and you're surround you're like I think I was yeah I could drive I had a shitbox uh, Dodge I was 16 years old making like no money or paychecks like 200 bucks but you're surrounded by looking good looking girls and you're like in the restaurant industry but you so slowly figure out like. There's lifers in that, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, and there's but nothing was, wrong with that. I, it was a defining moment for me. I'm like, this is not it for my life. Like, I don't want to do that. Look, I have some servers, even at this club, that have been with me for 10 years. Uh, but the reason being is that some people are lifer industry people. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of people catch on to this job and don't want to lose it because when you're a server in a comedy club compared to working in a regular restaurant – or bar. I mean, you're not out of here at three o'clock in the morning. We only run two shows, so everyone's leaving at a specific time. So there's a lot more certainty. You know when you're going to be getting off. You know when you're done. And the other thing is, you typically get done considerably early because we run scheduled performances, meaning they have a life to themselves on a Friday and Saturday night, which as you know, and you worked in hospitality as well, when you work that, you typically don't have a weekend to yourselves. So uh, there's definitely perks, uh, and and I also understand there are guys that are going to be hospitality lifers. When you get a gig at like here in Edmonton, a Ruth Chris, or at Minnesota, there's a great steakhouse called Manny's, where every person is 150 to 200 dollars a head. It's a great job to be a server if you're making an average 20 percent tip on a, every table's a thou- four digit turn, you know, thousand mm. dollar plus. Um, so I'm certainly not knocking anyone who stays in the industry as a lifer because I certainly am. I'm a lifer hospitality person. Uh, but at the same time, I will take shots at our government here in Alberta yeah. for getting a little out of control with just throwing money at uh, every student and 15 and 16-year-old. And yeah. 
You know, and like going to your point, what's going to motivate someone to work hard if we don't, uh, you know, have a job where there's incentivization to make more money or mm-hmm. to get a raise? You know, yeah. if we're just starting everyone off at a living wage. Yeah. So. Hey, I'm making a living wage like dishwashing. If I'm 15 and I don't know what I'm doing with my life, it's not it's not um, uncommon to see that carry someone through to their 20, and then eventually, hopefully, the you know the, the desire for more kicks in. But you got money and you're young, like yeah, of course you're just gonna be complacent. Yeah. You, know, you got to have a little fire there. But you're in an interesting position because you've kind of done it all in the industry and now you've taken over the management and ownership side of the comedy industry. So for a little bit of context for the listeners, let's hear about you starting your comedy career. So I started back in the uh, back in Montreal uh, far too many years ago. I just for laughs guy. I did do just for laughs. Yeah, but I actually started prior to even getting into comedy. I started as a magician. I used to do magic. And at the age of 12, I started doing magic shows for kids' birthday parties and other events and uh, fairs and things of that nature. And um, to a point where it made me a pretty good living as a 12-year-old, 13, 14. Uh, And then at 15, I just had such a bug for entertainment that I got introduced to comedy by a friend of mine who we had a high school talent show and he was the comedian on the talent show and I was the magician on the talent show. And I remember watching his comedy set and thinking to myself, I'm much funnier than that. And (laughs) even the magic I was doing was funnier. And uh, uh, fast forward probably a month after that, I auditioned for what was then called the Comedy Nest in Montreal. It still exists, the Comedy Nest, just in a different location. And um, my audition uh, was essentially myself and the club owner at the time and an empty room just to him. But because I was doing magic and comedy with the nature of magic being usually you take someone out of the audience to assist you in a trick, I had to have him be my assistant for three tricks in a row for this very strange, weird audition. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, uh, I, I, I got the gig right away, and uh, a year later, which is still mind-boggling to me, uh, myself and another friend by the name of Jeff Rothpan, who's a successful comic in L.A., um, he, he and I were headlining the Comedy Nest when he was 17 and I was 16, which is far too young to be putting a headliner up on stage, but... Uh, I, I caught the bug early, so I was lucky. I mean, I, 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 found, um, I found something that was a, a hobby and turned a hobby into a career, going from magic to comedy, and then from comedy, uh, it just kind of snowballed. It opened up so many doors. Uh, doing stand-up opened up the world of TV because I ended up filming a couple of comedy specials, and once I got a taste for that, I was like, well, why don't I just do TV? I mean, I was so young and arrogant and cocky, I just figured I'll make a TV show. And sure as shit, we shot a pilot for what was called The Tourist, which was a travel series that I created and produced. And um, What year was that? This is going back to the late 90s. I want to say 98 was our first season, mm-hmm. or maybe 99 to 2002. It was three, four-year period right about there. I you're mean, saying I'm, it's hard to find. You can't even find it online right now. Is oh, no, right? I have it. I mean, yeah. I have multiple. I have every episode, yeah. I just, I've never posted it online, and I'll tell you why. Part of it for me is just, uh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, although I understand there's no such thing as perfection, but if you strive for it, you can usually attain excellence, and so mm-hmm. I've always lived my life by that kind of mantra. Um, but... Um, 
I just didn't want to have, this is going to sound so pathetic, but the the series is so old that it's all four by three. It's not even 16 by nine widescreen, you know? So to me, it's just so jarringly old looking as soon as it's four by three, you know, and it's not the 16 by nine. And I don't need people thinking I'm any older than I currently am. I know I'm (laughs) fucking old. Thank you. I get it. Well, give it some time. Let it marinate, right? Another 20 years and then it'll be, it'll be so retro. It'll be relevant and cool again, right? Let's hope. Yeah. I don't know. But (laughs) so were you doing that before Anthony Bourdain started his? I was actually, believe it or not, I predated almost everyone, including this is going to, you guys might not even know this series, but um, David Tell used to do a show called Insomniac, which was kind of like a travel show based on, not even travel, he kept it in New York for the most part, but it was all the stuff that happened when everyone else in the world went to bed, so it was all the crap that happened between like 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and it had that, his was kind of built around him and the fact that it was him traveling around and he used a lot of his comedy but we really uh, and I and I I take a lot of pride in this we were probably the first I I don't know of any other travel comedy hybrid show where it was built around comedy and that really just came out and when I decided to create a travel show the whole reason was because I traveled so much as a comic mm-hmm. that I ended up enjoying cities and enjoying travel and I would watch these so-called travel shows on TV like Rick Steves and and they were just these long drawn out boring voice over narrated kind of shows uh, with these beautiful shots sweeping pan I don't know why I'm using my hands to walk you guys through a (laughs) shot for radio for podcasting but nevertheless just these like pan shots and uh, long boring voiceovers and I'm like why are these travel shows always so focused on the history of a place and the look of a place as opposed to going to the heart of a place which are the people mm. so we created a travel show that was more to be told you know if we were going to go visit San Francisco we're going to learn about it from people that actually live in San Francisco yeah. and me being a professional stand-up comic I'm going to do it with a bit of sarcasm and sass and have some fun while doing it so an example that comes to mind, I remember when we toured Quebec City for the first time and we wanted to show all these beautiful buildings. Instead of just doing the boring pans and beautiful shots of these gorgeous buildings, sure, they're beautiful, but what we did to spice it up, and I remember because we had such great reaction, I stood in the downtown old old Quebec core, like Via Quebec in the heart of it, and uh, had a petition trying to get people to agree with me to start putting vinyl siding up on all these old buildings. <laughs> and that's the way we showed the buildings off. And But better was the reaction and the right. juxtaposition of these people going, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Are you nuts? Yeah. These are beautiful. <laughs> um, so that's the type of stuff we were doing. And yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, this is years later, but I'm still really proud. And I do believe we were the first comedy hybrid to a point where, at, um, you know, with the Travel Channel at the time in the U.S., there were kind of four big shows on. And uh, one of them was Phil Kogan's show. And Phil ended up being the guy behind The Amazing Race, so he did a little better than me coming out of the Travel Channel thing. Well, Uh, race isn't over yet, I guess, right? No, it's not over. But that being said, I mean, he certainly was really quite effective in parlaying his Travel Channel notoriety into something much bigger, and I give him credit for that. That's one of the tips I wish I could have learned much earlier in my career is when my foot was in the door with certain broadcasters and I I was, uh, you know, networking with the right people instead of just being so focused on the project I was currently working on, 
I should have been working on projects two, three, four, five, and six while these doors were all open. Right. Unfortunately, you live, to, you learn. Tough to expand your horizon, right? It's Especially very, when you're young to, to think like, how am I going to achieve longevity in this industry versus like, holy shit, I got this opportunity. Let's make this work here today, right? hundred percent. It yeah. is very, very difficult. It's tough to not wear blinders yeah. because you sometimes want to. I, I think one of the aspects I share with many fellow entertainers and certainly a lot of comedians is we all have uh, what, would be def- what would be described now are... Um, called ADD. I I was never told I had it growing up, but I have all the signs. And I think when you have that kind of ADD, that's why it's the perfect world. Uh, You know, it's tough for you to stay completely hyper-focused. Sometimes people with ADD do better when they have six different things going on. Uh, And I've always been that way. I just wish I would have been pushing those six other things at the same time. I share that same sentiment. I have uh, ADD. I actually went through all my report cards from when I was really, really young, and they were all saying the same things, and able to, uh, you know, from outsiders looking in, they're like, oh, you're so busy, how do you balance that stuff? But when you have it, you're able to, you know, channel it for the most part on one project, two project, three project, and all kind of, you find a synchronicity between it, because you're also highlighted to your passion, because you're just so distracted by so much other stuff if you don't have you know, that big why to focus on. And then you just, you know, I, outside perception is like, oh, you're doing too much. I'm like, no, this is like how it's some, working for and me. And this is why it. I don't always buy psychologists and psychiatrists. Yeah. I gotta be yeah. honest with you because sure, it makes sense to say to someone, be focused on one thing, get that one thing completed. But you don't get how ADHD brains are wired. You might get it clinically, mm. but I promise you right now, I am way better at juggling five balls in the air than I am juggling two balls. But over what span of time? Are we talking a day, a week, or an hour? I'm talking probably by, I mean, by the minute. But I try to, you know, because it's funny you say that, especially in this computer day and age as we both sit here with our laptops in front of us. uh, I try not to be that guy that jumps from uh, browsing the internet to my email, Mm. to my Excel sheet. I try to stay focused on accomplishing a task. But I still do better with multiple tasks. Reason being, especially when you work in a creative industry in a creative environment, if the creativity isn't flowing, and that happens sometimes, sometimes you do get perennial writer's block. It just happens. And when that isn't, and when that is happening, I feel it's better to move on to something else that isn't creativity based. That might be more logic based. Maybe it's an accounting aspect of the business or whatever it may be. But just to be able to shift gears momentarily and work on something else Mm -hmm. is sometimes enough of a break just to catch my breath that the creativity pops back in as soon as I click back to that word document. Yeah, hundred percent. So do you think that helps you run clubs in you know essentially two different countries? I'm convinced it helps me run clubs. Uh, I'm convinced it allows us to run multiple clubs, expand the amount of clubs we have, run a management division, produce TV shows all while this is happening, so we're not lowering the amount of creativity that we're outputting. Uh, But there's no question, I find doing all those things at once, I'll typically try to put my bulk of my time into the one thing. I mean, we were just talking before we went to air on the podcast, but you know, we're doing this roast of Shane Doan in Arizona, and we have a deliverable due this Friday. We only shot last Wednesday. We shot and wrapped all in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's essentially a nine-day turnaround before we go to air there. Which is insane. Which is insane. Yeah. To cut an now, I mean, we had 90, uh, probably 100 minutes of footage 
that we cut down to 46 minutes of usable footage for the NBC broadcast. The one that we do for Canada and everywhere else will probably be a, a 90 minute uh, program that we're put together because we want to show the uncensored version. Of course. Oh, you have to show a censored version of a for roast? NBC, yeah. That's, wow, that that's brutal. That's like us, our documentaries having to show the broadcast version versus the director's cut version. It's heartbreaking because it's I not don't. what the project is actually about. No, and believe it, there's nothing worse too than having a network involved like NBC, whether it's on a local level or a national level, start critiquing and cutting and editing comedy. Mm. Guys, this is what we do for a living. Yeah. Allow us to do what we do. Yeah. We're good at it. You must be a rare breed, though, because you, you're involved in the whole spectrum. You're, you're involved in, in the talent side of it, but also in the production side of it as well. Like, like you know what it takes to get up on a stage and, and, and deliver a great set, but you also know how to shoot a great set and, and cut it together and edit and all that stuff and what it takes well, to Well, yes it. and no. I mean, I've worked on productions long enough that I understand everyone's aspect, and I can. I feel comfortable doing several myself. I know I can be a solid producer when I need to be. I can direct. I can write. Uh, uh, but you do never you never want to see me sitting behind an edit desk. Uh, if I'm sitting at I'm, I can do a paper edit. Mm -hmm. I can I can watch it and then you know give a, give feedback and tell you well try doing this cut to this at this time code do this. But to sit there and start manipulating editors a, are uh, their a breed own upon their own. Oh, I, I maintain they're the most talented people in the entire digital media industry. Hey, they're, they're the only people that can truly. Fix it in post. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A yeah. producer can always go, hey, we'll fix that in post, but it's never the producer. Yeah. No. Um, it's, uh, so, uh, yes, I, I, I think, and but you know what? I think that's one of the reasons, though, why our clubs get so much respect from comedians, and, and we're very proud of this, but I think it's because they recognize that our clubs are owned and operated, first and foremost, by a guy who did exactly what they did mm. for 30-plus years. Yeah. And, you know, there are other comedians that own clubs, but more often than not, I hate saying this, but it's usually a failed comic uh, that didn't get enough stage time on their own. And uh, they were shrewd, shrewd enough business guy that goes, hey, if I open my own club, I can be on stage every night with all these great comics. Right. Um, whereas I was forced into the world of opening comedy clubs, uh, not because I wanted to. I got very, very sick. Uh, I have Crohn's disease mm -hmm. to a point where it uh, almost killed me. Uh, back in uh, 2001. Uh, as a matter of fact, I woke up 9-11 uh, from surgery. I watched the uh, Twin Towers go down Jesus. while, I mean, I was still what I thought was high as a kite on narcotics from all these surgeries, not knowing whether or not this actually just happened or if I was dreaming the whole <laughs> damn thing. So I was forced into, I was in the hospital for a lengthy enough time that I had to watch a considerable amount of money in my bank account just slowly dwindle away without it being replenished because at that time with my young family, my wife and my eldest son, uh, I have two kids now but only the one at the time, uh, we recognized that our entire existence was based on my ability to remain healthy and working. Mm -hmm. Financial existence, certainly not anything else. My wife doesn't need me for crap. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, it, it was scary enough that uh, all this kind of happened. I mean, it was, uh, it was so strange how it happened. I mean, it was really, you know, timing in life. And, you know, they talk about timing in comedy. Mm -hmm. It was a situation where I got sick. And I got out of the hospital a few months later and found out that Yuck Yucks, who uh, used to be in this location here, mm -hmm. <clears throat> decided to uh, uh, not renew their lease and go somewhere else. 
and I instinctively just said, well, there's the opportunity. Let's open up a comedy club right where they were. Gut, right? And I did, and I went and met with uh, West Edmonton Mall. I met with the Gramazian family, and I remember meeting Don Gramazian at the time, and uh, I'm sure they thought I was just brash and cocky and arrogant mm-hmm. because I remember saying something along the lines that if you guys want to continue doing comedy in this room, I'm the only guy in this city that can do that. <laughs> And I felt it and I believed it. I mean, I was a product of Montreal. I grew up with the Just for Laughs Festival, yeah. like from day one. I remember right. it's. Exi- I remember when it was a nothing festival. So I really did feel like, comedically speaking, I was the guy to do it. I could produce the best shows. What I didn't know when I opened a bar is, how the hell do you run a bar in a restaurant? Yeah. No clue. How do you tie those two things together? No clue. And for the first two years, I probably had no clue, but I taught myself a new industry. And again, like we talked about earlier, I surrounded myself with really, really good people. Right. I mean, uh, my wife's a phenomenal booker. She's uh, She handles all the talent for the club as far as the headliners are concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an operations manager here who used to be at Yuck Yucks, who I've known for since I moved here in 91 and was a uh, in my wedding party. Um, and I have a good team here, and uh, and that's so key. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. You need to have – look, it, we talked about the hospitality industry. You're going to have people come and go. It's a high turnover industry. But when it comes to your senior management, if you can surround yourself with good people that are going to be with you for a long time and learn and grow with you and sometimes know a hell of a lot more than you do, um, it's uh, it's that's the best part, I mean, to have that – that team that becomes your family it really does do you think all great comics are born out of some form of tragedy i don't think all but i will say a very high amount Mm -hmm. uh reason i say that is they did actually did studies year years back and a lot of comics come from broken homes Mm -hmm. or come from divorced homes or come from a place where they used to get beaten pretty good in my situation i know how i became a comic when i was 12 are 11, 11 or 12, I broke my leg, and I was a pretty thin, just like you, Shane, I was a stick at your age, at, at uh, 12, and then broke my leg plane. He's called you a stick. Uh, I'm a stick. Yeah. Fuck. Do you got any food in this show? Here? I do. <laughs> uh, I, I broke my leg skateboarding, mm. and I remember uh, uh, two months of inactivity, and all of a sudden, it just changed my... Uh, changed my metabolism and I put on a lot of weight and from like 12 until I was 19 or 20 even maybe mm-hmm. I was kind of a heavy set kid yeah and I was either going to be the kid that was the fat kid that got picked on or I was going to be the fat kid who had a really quick retort and put <laughs> you back in your place right you and that, that that's what happened I ended up building a self-defense mechanism through comedy mm-hmm. and that self you know what ended up being what most people would call a class clown kind of scenario mm-hmm. ended up becoming a livelihood. I mean, I think the proudest thing I can say, boys, is that um, I've only ever had uh, one real jo- uh, one boss. Um, when I was uh, 12 years old, I delivered newspapers for the Montreal Gazette. So the guy that used to drop off my stack of papers was my boss. After that, I ne- I've n- literally never worked for anyone or anybody. Yeah, which is kind of exhilarating. What keeps you? But on also this, scary. What keeps you on the planet? Like what keeps yeah. you grounded from not just shooting off into the stratosphere? I think you know when you start as a performer of any kind, whether you're a musician or whether you're a comedian, no matter what your art is, 
you recognize early on that it is a struggle to make a buck. It is a struggle to get booked. It is a struggle to get a gig. And it's a struggle to make a livelihood. And even to this day, and I've been very lucky that we've done pretty well, I still always assume at the end of every fiscal calendar year that next year I'm going to make nothing. It's just kind of bred into me. You just Because when you're an entertainer, you could have a year that's unbelievable. And then the following year, same thing if you're an actor. Yeah. I mean... Look at how many actors seem like they're hot for three or four movies, and then you never see them. They just vanish. And mm -hmm. it's like they went from making all this money at once to not making anything. And I, I think there's something to live with that fear of just kind of always assuming you're not going to make it next year financially right. or worry about it. It motivates you. It pushes you. It's probably why I can uh, produce a TV show while handling three clubs and Again, I always say we have a great team here. I would not be able to do that by myself without my wife or without the uh, mm -hmm. without the key people involved with our business. Um, but um, it certainly it certainly helps me uh, to be able to think that I can handle all yeah. those things. When you were growing up and uh, you know going through that, and you you built that suit of armor as your you know defense self defense. Yeah. Were you looking for outside influences in comedy? And no. like, who were your, if you, did you have any growing up? That's the strangest thing, and I've been asked that question before, so it's obviously a very good question. And I'm, well, uh, influence, right? We're all from the way that we were raised. I share a similar sense. 100%. So when it came to show business and entertainment, um, until I started doing comedy, I wasn't even really familiar with comedy or comedians because I didn't, but I started comedy at such a young age. I started it at 15 which is kind of when probably people start to get introduced to it. You know, different now with the advent of the internet and you can watch anything at any age. But yeah. really, when I grew up, the only time you saw comedy is when you turned 18 and you were able to drink and you went into the local comedy club. Right. Uh, so I didn't really have, now retrospectively, I look back, I'm like, oh man, I loved Robin Williams. I mean, I loved what Carlin did, Sam Kinison. Uh, there's so many guys that now historically I've watched their footage and I've seen everything and they have absolutely influenced me but when I first started uh, because I was a magician before I was a comedian it was really magic that was my stepping stone into the world of comedy so unlike a lot of comedians that get into comedy because they're a fan of so-and-so or they were influenced by uh, this comic that comic uh, until I started actually I really was no comedians were really on my radar mm. uh, I didn't watch stand-up comedy again we didn't have the internet to watch stand-up right. comedy it sound, must sound so strange to anyone who's <laughs> grown up with the internet their entire lives yeah. that I even utter, utter the phrase that oh, that didn't happen because there was no internet yeah. I got like a like a nine-year, ten-year window when I was first born of no internet. And I, I remember when we got dial-up for the first time, right? So I kind of have a little bit of an inkling how that is. But let me ask... For uh, me, it, just to give you an idea, it wasn't until the 11th grade of my high school, which was my graduation yeah. year in yeah. Montreal, they only went to grade 11, um, that they started doing computer uh, class in right. school. Mm -hmm. That's the first time computers were even introduced. So that would have been like, what, early 90s? 1985. Late 80s. I, I feel like I, or 86, I graduated. Yes. I graduated high school in 86. And a computer back then was like... TRS-80 color computer was the first computer I ever owned. Oh, it was color. 16K. Wow. 16 kilobytes yeah. was the entire memory of the computer. Salty you had to use a tape drives. recorder yeah. <laughs> as your as your hard drive. Your tape recorder was where you stored everything. It's unbelievable. It was unreal. And my remember my first modem. I mean, I don't even know if kids even know about BODs. I was a 14.4 modem. And to put that in perspective for today's day and age and youth, I had to wait about four and a half minutes to see breast 
is what I'm suggesting to <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, you got that. I had to watch the top of the head come in first, <laughs> the built, eyes, the nose. And it built you patience. Yeah, it got to build yeah. a story. Probably. I yeah. feel like our age group got a good combination of that because I didn't have a cell phone until I was in grade 12. And oh, you know, geez, that was late. Carbureted, carbureted to fuel injected, taped to CD. We got to see some cool transitions. <laughs> CD to yeah. invisible. Now yeah, it's just yeah, it's yeah. streaming. We got yeah. the whole thing: cassette, CD, mini disc player, MP3 player. Uh, that's not, that is not the no. whole. That oh. now you're just young. No. Let's go back. I'll give you the whole. <laughs> eight track, eight yeah. track in my yeah, first yeah. car. Seventy six yeah. Lincoln. I had that too. You don't know music until you have listened wow. to Barry Manilow live right. on eight track <laughs> about nine hundred and. 74 uh, times. Here we go. It starts to go like, <laughs> just like, uh, it just starts to warp. Uh, yeah, yeah, I went through that. I remember owning a laser disc player. You yeah. guys, I don't know. If I remember laser disc. My dad had one of those. Yeah, so now I'm stuck with these box set album size digital yeah. movies that. But let me ask you, can you get rid of those? Like, is there some nostalgia there? Like, oh, could I I'd get rid of them in a heartbeat if I knew there was any value? The problem is I bought, you know, I'm still a bit of a miser in that respect because yeah. I bought something for like 150 bucks with the thought of it being worth a hell of a lot more one day. Yeah. And I actually think it might be. It's one of those things that if you, the only reason I say that is I'm watching, I'm, I'm so old, I watch enough American pickers now at this age. Oh, I geez. figure if I hold on to crap long yeah. enough. Yeah. It'll catch you. Yeah, as long as you got the storage for it, you know? So let me ask you a non-PC question because we're probably in the least PC place. Because you feel I'm so PC right here? Because we're in the least PC place in this city. But what is the predisposition with Jews and comedy? What's the deal there? Because I grew up in Vancouver. One of my best friends is Jewish. Spent a lot of time in his household. His family, mom, dad, sister, him, all hysterical. And it just seems like there's there's some type of synergy there. I, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that as a whole, we were a very oppressed people for mm-hmm. thousands of years. And mm-hmm. I think when you're 5,000 years of history and um, and you've survived the Holocaust and you survived Inquisitions and uh, and as a people, as a religion, I mean, I'm not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but to, I'm trying to put the best spin I can on answering this question. Um, I think you become very protective of your people and your history and you mm-hmm. certainly never want to see things get repeated and because of that I think there is a certain amount of you know it's a brotherhood Judaism Mm -hmm. I will say that and the only reason I say that is if I am traveling abroad and I'm talking to a guy beside me in the airport it's very casual until we both find out you know that there's we're Jewish you know there's something that comes up all of a sudden there's now an instant connection an instant bond an instant brethren um and I can't think of uh, any other religion that really bonds strangers that way. And mm-hmm. I think it is because we're so few right now. There's not a lot of Jewish people left in the world. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, because of how much we were persecuted as a people, uh, I think we do our very best to stand strong and tall together mm-hmm. as a group. So why are there so many people in comedy? It's a combination of two things, I guess, what I'm trying to say. One, we stand strong and tall together. So. I think when one person's in show business, we help another person get into it and so on and so on and so on. And I also think that because, again, going back to our oppression, this is how we have thick skin. This is not unlike me being the fat 13-year-old. I'm either going to get picked on or I'm going to have a retort, right? So similar to, uh, you know, being Jewish and being oppressed, I'm either going to be persecuted and I'm going to let them storm our town and put us into a concentration camp or I am absolutely going to go balls, just going to go nuts, balls out, just deep on them, you know? 
And option C, everyone can share the overbearing mother experience, I'm sure. That goes without question. There's definitely something about the uh, the Jewish uh, guilt mother. They seem to be uh, all related. Uh, that being said, I mean, it's funny. People always say, oh, well, you must love watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, because it's very Jewish, that show. And yeah. I'm like, can't stand it. Yeah. I am not a fan of Curb. And I'll tell you why. Because that comedy to me is all like this neurotic comedy. It's yeah. all neurosis. And that's how I grew up. Yeah. That was Super my home. That, it's not funny to me. It's just like childhood flashbacks of pain and suffering. And my mother calling me fat boy. Who the fuck needs that? <laughs> so like when it comes, you said your wife books all the talent, right? Yeah. So now is she picking all the all the comedians that are coming here? The headliners, absolutely. The headliners? Yeah. Okay. Not the opening acts, the support acts we handle internally in yeah. every market because each market, it's too difficult to do that as a national on a national level. Um, so we do that uh, locally at each venue. We have a, a, a local uh, club booker that handles the uh, local talent, the support acts. Uh, but she handles all the headliners, which is great because uh, uh, to this day, I hate agents, cannot stand dealing with them. So I thank God that my wife has the patience and know how to handle them. Um, I like the art. You know, I'm, at the end of the day, I might own clubs. I might be in management. But I'm in my mind, I'm a creator. For, I'm a comic first, and I'll right. always be a comic. Yeah. And when a comic comes through town, I will always uh, say that, you know, they're my comic breath. I don't feel that I have an owner comic relation i honestly feel like we're two comics and mm. one of them just happens to own a club now because yeah. if he didn't he'd probably have no money whatsoever because he got really sick and you know but at the end of the day yeah i'm uh, uh I, i'm really lucky that i get to spend my here's what's interesting when i was just a performer as a performer and I was touring around, I would never meet a lot of my fellow comics unless we did festivals and you meet the guys at festivals. Unless you live in New York and L.A. and you work at showcase clubs like a comedy store in L.A. or The Stand in New York, you don't get an opportunity to meet comic after comic after mm -hmm. comic. So uh, I'm actually really lucky that a lot of the guys who I've heard about over the years, I now get to see all the time because I don't need to be the guy on the road performing yeah. at the same time that these guys are coming here. Mm -hmm. So I'm really lucky in the respects that, you know, a lot of people go, ah, oh, you got Crohn's, you got very sick. And, and I got it really bad. I was like a seven surgery guy, almost killed me. Um, but at the same time, I'm also really thankful that I got Crohn's because it allowed me to find another arm of this industry, of this business. And at the same time, I am still ultimately doing what was a childhood hobby as a living. And I promise you, you find me any person in the world that has taken their childhood hobby of whether that was hockey and they became a professional hockey player, any childhood hobby, if you are working as your vocation, whatever your hobby was as a preteen or teen, I promise you they're amongst the happiest people in the world. Yeah, I've never done the official study. I'm only going based <laughs> off of what I can tell you. But I, I, I will promise you, if people are working at their hobby job mm -hmm. and getting paid for it, how do you beat that? I, I'll never forget. I, it, this still happens all the time. People will come up to you in comics and they'll come up to me and say, I don't know how you can get up on stage and just per talk in front of all these strangers and perform. And to me, that's second nature. Mm -hmm. uh, what I don't get is I'll say to these people, how do you get into your car every day at 8 o'clock in the morning, driving 40 minutes of traffic or an hour to wherever it is you're going, to go sit in that cubicle yeah. for eight hours, then to leave 
and go back and do the same uh, in the same traffic and then repeat it four more times in the same work week mm-hmm. forever <laughs> like for a long period of time i don't i honestly i know that sounds so str- but i can't wrap my I cannot wrap my, believe me, I work long hours. When you own your own business, you don't do eight-hour days. You're working a 24-hour day always. Mm -hmm. I mean, minimum hours we put in, my wife and I, I would say are 12 hard-working hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it is insane to me to think that people can do that for a living. But you had a taste of it at a young age, and some people never get a taste of it, unfortunately. 100%. They come up through school, maybe they don't take a risk, they don't take a challenge. And, and they just listen to what people tell them all the time, right? And there's got to be a... There is much more. You hit the nail on the head. You know, 90% of the world is the cattle mentality. 10% are the, are the ranchers, you know, are the... Are the uh, what's the word? Not ranchers. That's steer cattle. Uh, herd, herd cattle. I don't know what the name of the... Why am I forgetting? But nevertheless... Um, Let's just call it the cowboy, you know, but but 90% of the people are the cattle, you know, Um, and that's what I really have a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is there's a lot of, I think, a lot of expectations put on us from past generations, whether it's grandparents, parents, and you don't ever, it takes a long time to realize that you can actually challenge that. And what's more important than doing what they want you to do is doing something that's going to fulfill you and make you happy. And that by default will ultimately make them happy. But the thought of like, oh, I got to be a lawyer or a doctor is just paralyzing to some people. And Dude, you just described Judaism. What are you talking about? <laughs> as far as a Jewish parent is concerned, there is only three jobs, yeah. doctor, lawyer, or major disappointment. Yeah. That's it. So what was that like for you growing up and having uh, you know, a niche for this and, and you know, being in comedy clubs early on with the standard you know, of how... Growing up, not a problem at all because my parents didn't realize that this was going to be a career choice. They just thought, wow, he's making all this extra money as a teen and... Uh, and we came from a pretty modest background, my brothers and I. were My parents were very middle class, but I grew up around a lot of affluent people. So for me, it was awesome that I made I was making this money for myself. So I had this, I could buy stereo equipment, go skate. Yes. And so they were really happy with me growing up. Um, I think it wasn't until I was 18 and dropped out of college Uh-oh. and moved in with my non-Jewish girlfriend at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I was, li- uh, I was all bad. All bad things all come bad, to head. Right? All bad things. I was living with my non-Jewish girlfriend. Not that that would have bugged my parents. Yeah. Uh, but I think me being the old eldest at the time. What's that called? The shiksa? Shiksa, you got it. How did you? And let me ask how you knew that. I told you, my best friend is Jewish growing up. Oh, see, now I thought you were gonna say uh, you'd watch some Lenny Bruce stuff because Lenny Bruce used to always refer to his girlfriend as his shiksa goddess. Shiksa goddess. Yeah. And and I would be what they refer to as a goy. Yeah, that's right. But you know what goy actually means? I think a lot of people find that it is a. that it's a racial slur of some kind, or that it's uh, that it's really negative. Goy actually translates to it's Yiddish, which is a dying language, but it translates to other nations. Right. That's really all that it means. So it means everything. Yeah. The same way when Yiddish people are talking about black people, they say Schwarze. Yeah, okay. Now, and Schwarze isn't a derogatory term either. It literally Schwarz in Yiddish means black. Okay. That's exactly what it means. So it's not an n bomb or okay. anything along those lines. But nowadays, black could be considered uh, oppressive. If you say about Tell me about guy. it. I just had to drop a joke from the Shane Doan roast. I was so choked about because I Can loved you tell it. Us what the joke yeah, was? I'll tell you. I don't care. And, for, and second of all, the person I was targeting for it is a guy that's a dear friend that I've known for a million years, yeah. and everyone knows George LaRock. Yeah. 
So my joke for George, I ended up going with the, this joke. I'll tell you what I ended up going with and what I wanted to use. But the joke was, uh, uh, well, first of all, I point to him. I go, my good, uh, and of course, uh, last but not least, Donald Brashear is here this evening. <laughs> um, I go, actually, tease. that's George LaRock. Yeah. And I say, George is actually evidence uh, that the opposite expression is true. Black does crack if you've been punched in the face about 450 times. <laughs> that's what I ended up going with. Yeah. But the joke that we wrote was... Uh, uh, I did the Donald Brashear thing, and that was fine. But then I want to say, George, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate you coming down for the Empire State Building to be with us here this evening. <laughs> and that wasn't a black <laughs> monkey joke. That was just, I. if you know George, he's, he's a gorilla. He's a big, dumb gorilla. He's just a gorilla. He is yeah, exactly. massive. And that's the reference of the joke. So it just goes to show you, people are, and I had to cut the joke because yeah. my director thought that that was too edgy. And yet George comes up on stage and, you know, we're there to bust Don's balls, but he starts coming after me. Jewish this, Jewish that, Jew guy this. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I can't believe I cut that joke. And I was even saying, what's the worst he's going to do if I do the if I do the Donkey Kong joke? He's going to throw barrels at me? I mean, like, yeah. You know, how do you balance this? Like, like, comics are really the ones, like, keeping the rest of us safe in terms of pushing back the, the political Trying to, right? yeah, but you know what? You bring up a great point, Shane. I'll tell you, man, I feel... Unlucky that you can't find any of my work that I did as a yeah. 90s-based comic. But it's also lucky, too, because like I said, I also don't have crappy videos of me right. floating around on the internet, and I can control that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this day and age, I'm almost happy I am not a touring comic in this day and age. Yeah. Not that I ever really pushed the envelope. I'm not a political comic. I'm more of a Don Rickles-esque. I'm a ball-busting kind of comic. I like to talk to the audience, beat them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But nowadays... Uh, I would be so scared performing, I feel like you have to self-edit everything you say. And comedy for me doesn't work if I just can't spit it out. I sometimes need to have the words come out before my brain even processes them. Like, I'm hearing the joke sometimes for the first time when the audience is right. hearing it. Well, any, any great performer, athlete, anyone needs to be able to work from a state of flow, right? You have you've got, to. You've got that practice that's made you who you are and that intuitive skill that, that allows it to just flow out of you. So to have to second-guess yourself completely goes in the face of what comedy is all about. And and to be in an age now of a hashtag me too generation uh, where we have to be uber concerned about LGBTQ. I mean, what I wish comedy clubs could still be is the place where all that stuff, and I'm assuming I can swear on this, oh, right? yeah. 100%. all that stuff means should mean in a comedy club Fuck all. Yeah. Yeah. This should be the place where we can break down race and religion and have fun with it. You know what? I was told way back when starting in common, it's laughing t- about this stuff together as a group. Mm-hmm. That to me is what breaks down the race and all the issues that we see in the real world. Keeping it bottled up and not talking about it or being scared to mention. To me, that's the stuff that creates the racial tension. I know it yep. makes me tense just being walking on eggshells, worrying what the hell I can say on stage. 100%, yeah, right? I think, so, uh, I think I, the locker room stuff, right? Like going to athletics and performance on the hockey side of things is that's where you do get to do that. You get to shoot the shit. You get to be real. Nobody's judging. You're not limiting yourself. You're not worrying about that joke. Or I, there was a, was it a couple of years ago? Wasn't that in Montreal where a guy 
called some lady in the crowd uh, a lesbian of some the, kind. That, there the, was an incident in Vancouver not long ago, um, and that ended up being an actual court case. Like it got yes, into geez. the judicial yes. system, yeah, which is like unbelievable to me. Twenty grand or something. Yeah, like that. Yeah, good luck. Them? Good luck getting twenty grand off a Canadian comic. We'll yeah. see that in seventeen years. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. But it's just everyone's looking for a reason to be offended, and like you said before, I think comedy's kind of been like at the front line defending it for everyone, where it is a free space where you can kind of just all get over yourselves mm-hmm. and just have a good fucking time. It should be. As far as I'm concerned, when you step foot into a comedy club, it should be a PC-free zone. Yeah, no holds What are we going to get to the point where people have to sign a waiver? Like, you will not sue. You might be offended. Da, 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 da. Like, it's, it's I think a, you guys already make an announcement, right? You might be offended by what happens. No, to... I don't do it, I, anything like that here. We don't do a, a, an offense. We, we do tell people to shut the hell up during yeah. the show and turn off their cell phones. Yeah. But, um, no, I, I just I, – I'd like to see comedy clubs – uh, and I and I firmly believe this. I, I think that we are the last bastion of free speech. Yeah. We are the last true soapbox. This is the British versions of uh, England's version of Hyde Park and getting mm-hmm. up on a soapbox and being able to express yourself no matter how you want, mm-hmm. whether it resonates with the crowd or not. Yeah. Doesn't matter. You should be able to have free will, free speech on that stage. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what I'm going to fight for until the day I yeah. die. And to this date, if we, have a, uh, if we have a guest that ever complains about the content of what a comic says, we always say the same thing. First of all, the comics change every week. Yeah. Uh, so watch the video, see if it's someone you want to come to. But more than anything else, your ass is not glued to the seat. Yeah. If you are so offended by what you're hearing, mm-hmm. go. Get up and leave. Leave. You're not stuck here. Mm-hmm. And here's my favorite thing, and least favorite thing about owning a comedy club. When that happens in a comedy club, people will call us or email us the next day. We weren't happy. We'd like our. We'd like to be refunded. Mm. How many shitty fucking Oilers games have the same people been to? <laughs> Do you think they call the Oilers brass the next day and say, "I want my." $400 for two tickets refunded, but for yeah. the $40 for two tickets, yeah. they'll call in a heartbeat. There's no difference whatsoever. You go to a shitty movie, you don't ask for your money back. Yep. And we don't book shitty comics. It's just sometimes it's not your cup of tea. Yep. Yeah. Everyone we bring in, you guys know our roster. I mean, we bring in the who's who of the of comedy. It's we bring in the hottest yeah. people that, like the fact that some of these people that we get are even coming to Edmonton, that blows away yeah. a lot of other clubs in Canada that yeah. we, I mean, I, I, I really got to give my wife credit and Edmontonians certainly don't realize this but the the comic strip in Edmonton uh, if you live in Edmonton and you are a comedy fan you are being exposed to uh, the best comics in North America here in Edmonton that very few comedy clubs across Canada are booking on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, and that was always our mo- uh, our model when we started. We didn't want to be a Canadian comedy club. We wanted to be a U.S.-style A-room that brought in guys that were recognizable because of being on this show or this movie or mm-hmm. this project. Yep, well, just Brendan even walking. Just Brendan, walking exactly. I mean, Brendan's huge. I mean, yeah. Brendan's massive now. And yeah. you know what? He's such a good guy. And I love the fact that he pulled his MMA world audience with him over to comedy. It's great for all of us in comedy because it just exposed us to a whole new audience. Now, people that are involved in MMA are kind of comedy fans just because of the Rogans and the Shobs of the world. So, yeah. well, the it exposed in, us to all new listeners. The guy in front of us had cauliflower ears and he was like really excited <laughs> to meet Brendan and come in and 
Like, I like watching people win. It's why I don't really have one favorite hockey team anymore. I like watching a good a good game and a nice performance. So we got to see Brandon two days in a row when Shane and I came, and then I, I brought my wife, and we sat just right there. And watching him do it, mix it up, seeing just a slight tweak of a joke and seeing if it landed to refine himself for the ultimate well, he, test be, on stage. Well, but the reason being, yeah, you know, so yeah. the, uh, we were the last stop, I think, before he taped his special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he did a couple more. comedy store warm-ups or whatever, yeah. but he, uh, he he said it was good to test it out on a, on a different audience. And, and I can't imagine, I mean, the adrenaline rush from fighting or, or whatnot, but do you recall any moments or stories where you've been on stage, similar to Brendan at his best, where you bombed and the adrenaline that you felt in that situation versus, say, winning an award? Well, I don't know if you feel adrenaline when you bomb. Uh, it is literally, when you have a rough set, you just want to bury yourself under a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever felt adrenaline, unless that's some kind of reverse adrenaline that I'm yeah. not aware of. But it like a, a concussion panic, like, grenade oh, going off, and it's just like it, white. You're things like, can get a little foggy, yeah. feel a little dreamlike, especially when you're used to doing well. I yeah. mean, it's so surprising to come comics when it goes bad but it happens to everybody mm. shit you get full moons you know yeah three weeks of minus three we had in 15 years in this club for the first time ever two weeks ago i wasn't here a fist fight between two tables really first time people no one fights at a comedy club you come you sit down you watch the show yeah yeah I, that's pretty like to not, ha- to not have two fights in 15 years anywhere is kind of impressive to me. Let but alone but like I said, I mean, do you, how, do you ever see a fight at a movie theater? Yeah. You have? Yeah. I fought a guy Fucking Alberta. Man, I don't know how you guys grew up here. <laughs> I, got I grew up in though. Vancouver. Oh, you grew up in Vancouver. Yeah. I was going to say, when I, when I uh, grew up in Montreal, people dressed up to go downtown. So you never saw bar fights. People were always like, yeah. I, I never wore jeans and running shoes in downtown Montreal. You didn't get into bars if you did that, right. into clubs. Uh, and yet when I and so I never witnessed a fight and yet came out to Alberta and it almost became like uh, I went where I met my wife, which was uh, uh, oh on Calgary Trail. Now they re- it used to be Barry Barry Tees when I yeah, met her. Yeah. Now it's something else. The, the ranch. Is it the ranch? Yeah. All right. And um, you met when, your wife there. Yeah, I know. Wow, it's a terrible to all story. you 18 year olds going to the ranch. You might find true love. Well, I was 20 something. I must have been 21, 22 because I came here in 91. You were on your. You, this was like a, a flyover spot for you, right? You were on your way. Uh, up to Vancouver I was go, hoping to get to Vancouver. My goal was always this: I'm going to Vancouver. I'll break into TV writing in Van, and then yeah. once I have a few credits under me, that's it. Right to LA. Yeah. My dream would have always been. Uh, I mean. In today's modern terms, if uh, this existed when I was pursuing it, my dream gig right now would be like a staff writer on Family Guy. <laughs> to be able to work with a guy like Seth MacFarlane, yeah. who I think is just a creative genius, mm-hmm. um, and also just to work on a show where one of the things I've always loved about animation, and especially adult animation, ad- animation like The Simpsons, Family Guy, um, is when you produce a show like that, you can do anything. You can get away with anything. Any, anything. And I mean, and you can be in any country and it, there's no sets. You don't want to, you're right. It's all, you draw it, right? So you, it's limitless. You want to do an episode that takes place in outer space. You got an episode that takes place in outer space. Yeah. And I always loved that idea. But I also loved the idea that I'd be working with 12 other guys and we'd be, turns out it doesn't really work that way in Hollywood. No, no. no when no you're a staff is. writer, you typically, like on a show like Simpsons or um, Family Guy, 
one or two guys will be the key guys for writing the actual script, and the other 10 guys who are supposed to be quote-unquote punching it up are really there more often than not trying to beat the shit out of it so that when they submit their script, you know, that that next time they should be taking their script and not right. these guys' script. Right. So even in what I thought would, would have been the greatest job, this kind of team comedy uh, mind melt, if you will, you know, this brain trust isn't even what I thought it would be. Uh, that being said, a part of me very much would still love to be part of a show like uh, a family guy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Simpsons had a great run in the 90s where it just it's season after season was great. Yeah. And, and then I, I stopped watching kind of mid to late 2000s. It seemed to go downhill a little bit. And as far as I understand, it's because writers kind of bounce around to different different shows. Is that is that like someone once told me the writers of Simpsons moved over to Futurama? Ra- writers did change. I mean, as a matter of fact, they often the showrunners changes just to breathe some life. Uh, producers believe even change uh, mm-hmm. for a few seasons it was a couple of boys out of calgary that were uh the yeah. showrunners for the simpsons actually yeah. um and uh yeah i think uh i think the producers of shows like that have to from time to time you know when you've been writing for the same characters for 20 years you gotta sometimes you just need some fresh blood you yeah, need to breathe sure. some new life into yeah. it one thing i wanted to ask you is that a lot of a lot of professions um seem to go the complete 180 when they're not in work mode, right? Like you're a chef, you don't necessarily cook these phenomenal extravagant meals back home. What's it like as a comic? Are you are, are you just, do you feel on all the time? Are you seeing the humor and everything? Or like when you leave the club, Another good question. you know, are, is it like, geez, I just need to like, like, like become an introvert and just kind of reset for a second? I don't think I ever be, it's, but it's a really good question. I don't think I ever become an introvert. Um, but I also, at the same time, I'm not always on in the aspects. Because when you say always on, if you compared it to Rick Bronson on stage compared to Rick Bronson in real life, I am manic as hell on stage. I always have described me on stage as me to the 10th exponential, mm-hmm. 10 times louder, 10 times more obnoxious, 10 times more sardonic, 10 times more sarcastic, whatever adjective you want to throw in there. But it was everything to the 10th exponential. Uh, and if I lived that way, I'd have a fucking coronary. I mean, I'd have a heart attack and die. I may as well just be taking fistful of Coke uh, every second because it's going to be more fun going that way. Um, but uh, at the same time, I don't think a comic can ever shut it off. No. I mean, if you did something right now or something happened that was remotely funny, it is within my nature and every fiber of my body to make a comment on it, to, do, to stay there tight-lipped. It's just not who I am. I haven't been hardwired that way, and I think it's just it's just so natural now. So even when I'm off, I find that I innately take the comedic line to a point where I've had no people in the room and my dog does something funny. I will say something. Yeah. You know? Let's practice some material, right? <laughs> well, I'm saying it's not even – it's just so innate. It yeah. just comes out, yeah. right? So – I think comics have to dial it down, especially comics who work the way I do and uh, friends that come to mind are guys like Jimmy Schubert who are so high energy and so frenetic that if they kept up that pace all the time, they would kill themselves. But at the same time, I honestly think I can wake a comic up out of their sleep and they're going to hit me with like, what the hell are you doing? And then say something funny and then... You know, probably go right back to bed. I think it's just in our DNA. Right. You know, when you're the class clown, most class clowns, the reason they're class clowns is because they're the first to kind of, 
make that, that comment, yeah. say it right away, and you know it's usually the first to get sent to the office or put outside the room. But I'll bet you. Uh, I mean, I won't bet you. I, I can guarantee you this that a good deal of comics out there, aside from being the guys that it became their self-defense mechanism, they got into comedy for that reason. Right. Well, we're more exposed to comedians now than ever. I mean, everyone seems to have a... There's, Netflix is... I feel like 10% of Netflix is just com- comedy specials. They're big on comedy. I, I have a hard time calling them Netflix specials because when they seem to give one to every comic, right. it doesn't feel all that fucking special. Right. I've watched some where I'm like, is awkward? You know, when you yeah. see, you've seen shows, well, when that one heckler was... Was hearing those guys were in the corner when we were sitting the first night there. You feel that awkward sort of tension right. that guys, you know, go through, and it's. Uh, but but has the exposure to that has it um, has it helped your business or hindered it? Like, are people more willing because they see it on Netflix or, or whatever uh, distribution platform to say, "Hey, let's go see this in real life," or is it like we don't need to go to the club because I can just watch it at home at the click of a button? Um. Let me start by saying, first of all, I think comedy, like every other industry, has ebbs and flows, ups and downs. It's it's going to look like it, it's going to look like any chart you look at for any industry online. It's going to mm-hmm. peak, it's going to dip, it's going to re-peak, pass it. Um, that being said, comedy's really hot right now, and things like the internet are never going to hurt it. Mm. That being said, I've always been fearful of that. I spend a great deal of time marketing and targeting millennials. Reason being is I don't want them to believe, think, or feel. And you guys know this because you've sat in this room and you've taken in live comedy. There is no Netflix special or TV special or watching it through a flat screen of any kind that will ever replace the feel of sitting in a room full of strangers and sharing a laugh with a room full of strangers. Mm-hmm. I promise you this much. If you watch comedy on TV and you watch the exact same set in a live venue, you laugh harder and more often. When you watch TV, people tend to be a little more analytical from my perspective. In other words, they'll sit there and go, oh, that was very funny. Oh, that was good. <laughs> As opposed to just getting caught up in the moment right. of being part of an audience and part of a comedy club. And if there's one thing we keep pushing is to come see this live. Like one of the ads that I run, I had my graphic artist create. I love it. It says uh, it's a kid on his iPad and it says stop streaming. It's funnier live. Um, And it is. It's way better to see comedy live. And it's way better for humanity to congregate. We don't do that enough anymore as people. Mm -hmm. We'll go sit in restaurants with other people, but you sit at a table with one other person or the three people you like. We never do anything where we congregate any longer. And some of the best experiences I've ever had in my life while traveling has been from being either placed into a foursome golfing with two or three people I've never met before or being sat at... I remember taking my wife for the first time to Schwartz's in Montreal, and she was so offended that we they just seat you with other people. But, I mean, it's that kind of place. Yeah. It's that busy. You take the open seat. Take what you get. Yeah. And yeah. I've met some of the coolest people I've ever sure. met in my life by experiences like that. So I love that comedy clubs still congregate masses, and I think that is so key for humanity's existence. Mm-hmm. As full of crap as that might sound to some listeners, I promise you. We need to congregate more in public in, in public outings, and that's why I still will always support the Oilers and Eskimos because 
It's what it does to the moral psyche of a of a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's winning or losing, that's not the point. It's getting together and rooting and cheering. Yeah. You and know? here at least there's no cell phones, no other distractions, and you're kind of just in the moment and not seeing what's next or writing a review halfway through the show. You know, and some guys film their specials and they take the phones away. You put them in a bag. And Chappelle's done known for that now all the yeah. time. If I you think go Rogan see it, does that as well too, he right? might. It's very yeah. possible. Um, I, I haven't. Uh, I shouldn't say I haven't seen Rogan perform. I've seen Rogan. I was just with him at the comedy store about a month ago, mm-hmm. maybe five weeks ago. Um, boy, he kill it. Audiences just love him. Yeah, he is beloved. He is what I, I actually call him a, a career maker in this day and age yeah. because if you get on Rogan's podcast yeah. uh, and you're another comic, like what he's done right now, um, being uh, getting in with that group for a buddy of mine like Andrew Santino, who's mm-hmm. uh, here in a little while. Um, Andrew got in with the Brendan Schaubs and the Brian Callens of the world, and that got him in with the Rogans of the world, and now... Andrew is a lot better known than he was just about a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the p- podcasting's done unbelievable things for comics on a whole, uh, yeah. specifically the Joe Rogans, the Theo Vaughns of the world, the Burt Kreischers. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of guys. Joey Diaz. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Joey Diaz, and Joey said, Rick, I, I only go on the road now two weeks out of every one week on, one week off, one week on, one week he goes, I don't need it. I'm, he goes, I'm doing so well off the YouTube uh, money and all, everything else. I'm like, Godspeed, man. Good yeah. for you. Well he played. Can't, he can't cross the border, right? Yeah. He can't. I've so been working with LA. him diligently for years. I'm, I, it'll happen, boys. I okay. promise you. I, I go too far back with Joey. We love Uncle Joey, and um, we'll get him here. It's Look, we've had other comics here who were named unnamed that had much worse rap sheets than Uncle Joey does. So oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm relatively confident we'll get Joey Diaz at this club. I wonder if he's still off the edibles. Last podcast I was on, or I heard I, he was still he was off the edibles. Now he's talking about those death stars, Joe Rogan. I just love how he says everybody's name like in full. He's just he's amazing. I'd love to see. <laughs> I him. just love that everyone with him is a cocksucker, yeah. motherfucker. Yeah. It's one of the two. Yeah, the guys, uh, the guys, something else. Um, so you've worked with a lot of people, collaborated with a lot of people, um, you know, looking and doing our research, you know, the name Bill Clinton came up and, yeah, Bubba. and Lance Armstrong. So what was it like being in the presence of somebody like that? Who's got a very high IQ for, you know, I think he's the highest IQ president, um, you know, very persuasive, just has great stage pre- presence and such a great speaker. What's it like being around somebody like that? Uh, first of all, you're hundred percent right on, on Bill Clinton. I, I got to work with him on at least a half dozen occasions and every time, uh, the speech was never the same. And every time he never had notes in front of him. And every time he quoted facts and figures, like to the decimal point kind of quoting, you know, Mm. uh, you talk about presence. I remember being backstage and my back was turned, but you felt him come in. Wow. I got chills just thinking about that. I like, just, it was, he, yeah. and whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I don't care. But at the end of the day, that's how a president should make you feel. Mm-hmm. I was fearful of talking comedy with Bill Clinton just because the way he speaks, I'm like, you're going to know more about comedy than I do. I don't right. want to talk to you about, whereas, 
I'm not afraid to sit down and talk anything with Trump, except I don't fucking want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that scares me that a president, I mean, to not have a president that is a strong communicator really frightens me. Um, but he was unbelievable. I mean, I was really lucky doing those shows. And again, I would never have been on those shows if I didn't have Crohn's disease. Mm. What got me into that sh show was I was a regular comic. But I had a good chunk of my show that was all about my health and going to the hospitals and living with disease and living with illness, which is something that obviously strikes a chord with many people in the world. To be able to take light of these humorous of these situations that are usually far from being humorous and to make light of them struck a chord. And because I just found that little niche, somehow it got me invited onto these shows where I ended up working with the likes of Bill Clinton, Deepak Chopra, Lance Armstrong, Michael Eisner, the then CEO of Disney. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was meeting people I had no business meeting. Uh, Mark Burnett, uh, Dr. Phil, who I will gladly say on every podcast was a fucking douchebag. Um, <laughs> he kind of sounds yeah. like a dick. Let me ask you, when you're going into, you know, meet with someone or encounter someone that casts such a big shadow that the reputation totally precedes them, how do you know... I mean, like, how do you know where to draw the line? Like, how do you know, like, what might be too far with them? Or do you just not care? Well, with those guys, I was never in a situation where I had to play ball buster with them. I was typically the guy introducing them. Mm. So uh, with those professional day-long events we were doing, they had very succinct um, intros that I had to do. Like, I'll never forget it. To this day, I had to, when I did President Clinton... I had to refer to him as uh, President, please welcome the 42nd President of the United States of America, President William Jefferson Clinton. Yeah. Like you had to, like there was a specific way to say things. Um, so I was never really fearful about what I might say in front of them. I got to spend a lot of time hanging out backstage with them yeah. and over the course of doing this. And I'll tell you what hurts me the most, I'll never forget. I loved Lance Armstrong. He was such a great guy. Like, I, I'm not a bike career guy. I, I don't follow bike racing. I'm a Canadian. That's right. why I put on some hockey, boys. Yeah, Come yeah. on. Um, but getting to know him, he's like a, like the total guys guy, just like a great, like the same way we're shooting the shit here and hang. That's what it was like hanging with Lance. So it was so disheartening watching his career fall apart sure. the way it yeah. did. And uh, even when all that was happening, I still kind of, I'll, I'll always like the guy. Because right. oh, I, yeah. I got to know him on a personal level. So... There's a million cheaters in the world. I mean, if you hated everyone that cheated for whatever cheating they did, I mean, you'd be really limiting your friend pool. Well, I yeah. think uh, I think 18 of the top 20 after that tested positive. He just got caught. Caught, I think exactly. he lost a lot of respect when he was countersuing. But I love the guy. I've heard him on Joe Rogan. I like seeing top performers and what they're what they're like how they you know give you their attention you know we've all been around some NHLers or celebrities I think Brendan was very cordial like we went for lunch with him he didn't really make you feel weird and then there's some no, people he's... that make you feel real shitty what was it like between like you know Bill and 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 Lance in terms of how they made you feel oh they, them? they are great uh, Bill Clinton has that ability that rare ability that you can be in a room with a hundred other people but if he's talking to you directly mm -hmm. you just feel like it's you and him. Really? Um, all the guys. I mean, I, I can't think of anyone that I really just didn't enjoy being around other than Dr. Phil. Mark Burnett could have been a little more pleasant in the respects that I got him. I got a buddy of mine who's now a very successful director out of Vancouver, uh, an interview with him to because uh, he's a producer-director, just wanted to pick his brain a little. And I'll never forget him and I spoke to Mark Burnett. We had like ten, 10 whole minutes with him we were given. 
and the guy was looking down at his phone the entire time we were uh, chatting with him. And I just remember thinking to myself, if you were a young producer and young director, Mark, and you were starting out and you finally got a chance to someone talk to someone who's in your current position, mm-hmm. is this how you'd want them to talk to you? And stuff like that I never forget. We never, uh, my wife and I, we'll, it's funny, we're not easily offended. Things don't bother us, but um, we uh, we do reckon, if a, if a comic comes through here and is a diva or was mean to our staff and was high maintenance, I don't care how big a name you are and how much money you may have made us that week. Yeah. You so ain't no coming back. No problem trading your first round pick if you got a bad <laughs> attitude. Yeah. Right. Although I'd do better than our current GMs in Edmonton. I'd get at least three guys for a first round pick as opposed to the crappy one-off trades. Yeah, yeah. our trade in uh, MVP for uh, nobody. For <laughs> nobody. <laughs> You're, uh, who's the most outrageous guy that's come through here? Like that just left like in a good way or a bad way that everyone was like, that fucking guy. Probably still to this day when you just talk about outrageous and off the out of his head, uh, but I love him and he's a dear friend. Uh, but he has taken a lot of heat this past year. Is uh, T.J. Miller? Oh yeah. What did he take heat for? He was pretty messed up. I'm pretty sure on some drugs and booze and called in a uh, uh, a bomb threat oh. on a <laughs> on a train on an Amtrak. Oh shit. Brutal. He was just here in September. September, Look, I haven't. I've never even heard this story validated, but that it's something along those lines, according to the internet. But um, yeah, he'll be back in September. He's here right after the summer. Fantastic. And we're lucky because, and that just shows again my wife's relationships uh, with these comics and some of the agents. TJ, a guy like TJ Miller in every other market is doing thousand seat theaters minimum. Uh, We're one of maybe four or five clubs that he still plays, just because of how. He was treated coming up, you know, uh, so we're really lucky. Although the night that still stands out one of the most to me in this venue <clears throat> was uh, probably the night we set off the fire alarms when we had an after party with Charlie Murphy in here. Oh, and <laughs> darkness. Yes, yeah, stories. I love and, stories. And darkness, sure, we sure, there was a lot of pot smoke in, uh, yeah. this, <laughs> in this venue. And that was before the days of vaping, so it was real smoke. I'm sure the mall will be thrilled to hear this story. Um, but yeah, we set up the fire alarm with Charlie Murphy. Yeah. Is that, hopefully that was after the second show. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the oh, yeah. shows were long done. It was Sunday night, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I miss him a lot. He was great. That's Charlie really was a good guy. Uh, but that's a night that really stands out to me here. But in all honesty, we've been really lucky. We've had some amazing experiences. We've had some unbelievable performers come here over the years. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget our first big performer we ever booked here uh, was Kevin Pollock. You guys remember Kevin Pollock? He was yeah. in The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in... Uh, uh, the Tom Cruise movie where he played a lawyer, a Marine lawyer, or a uh, Navy lawyer. A few Good Men. A few Good Men, mm-hmm. thank you. Um, he was in that as well. Like, he, big time actor. He was the first guy we booked, and I remember booking a guy, and it was, my wife and I were so fearful because he was like $10,000, and we've never, I mean, at that point, we were probably yeah. spending 1500 a week on talent, you know, and you hear ten grand, and we were shitting in our pants. And it ended up going great, and then we, which was fantastic because it allowed us to start bringing in bigger and bigger acts all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kevin Pollock, I'll never forget, was that first big guy. And I'll show you how far we've come. Uh, when we had that first big act, not only did we have a limo set up, but I was even in the limo to make sure that the limo got to the hotel <laughs> properly. Like, I didn't want to take any chances. Now, it doesn't matter how big an act. It's like, 
Take an Uber. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Good to keep them humble. That's an interesting point. Like, you know, I've been to the late shows, and it's kind of almost a shame because you come in, you have a great time for an hour and a half, two hours, or whatever the time is, and then and then it's just kind of like, all right, go enjoy your night. Like, it's almost like you don't want the party to end. What yeah. You, like, is you, you guys I, obviously have I, like? Believe the, me, I wish I, I the wish also, the party could continue because yeah. there's nothing from my standpoint from being a club owner that doesn't want me selling more booze as long as of I course. can. Yeah, yeah. Problem is the nature of the industry that I chose. It's a de- very definitive set times. You know, right. the shows are about a hundred minutes long, as yeah. you say, and we uh, start at the exact same time for every person. I mean. It's one of the challenges of also operating this from a food and beverage standpoint because most restaurants and bars, you can stagger your seating every 15 minutes or seat one person's section and don't seat them for a while and seat somebody else's. Mm. Here, everyone shows up within the same 20, 25 minutes. We get slammed all at once. How many seats are in there? 300. So you get 300 sat all at once. All at once, all all ordering and drink, uh, eat food and beverages at once and all expecting to be first out delivered. So. Um, all things considered, my staff does an amazing job getting people their food and beverage. Mm-hmm. The fact that we even get people fed in a time frame that's under two hours yeah. is pretty impressive, you know. Um, but um, it's uh, that is probably the biggest challenge with owning and operating a comedy club because when you do food and beverage, people will always just assume it should run like a regular restaurant. Yeah. And yeah, for the most part, they're 100% right. It should run like a regular restaurant with the exception of the fact that our kitchen gets slammed. slammed. And I'm guilty a, of that, I'll admit. I didn't think of that actually last time I was here, but it's good to there know. There you go, yeah. Sure. Uh, to a point where I've even created uh, uh, presentation slides on our video screen beforehand to tell people that, like, guys. Or here's my favorite. This is my Minnesota issue I always talk if you have a problem, mm-hmm. let us know. Ask for a manner. Believe me, I want to fix the problem. How does it benefit me, either of you two, leaving mad after a show? In any way. None whatsoever. But people think that I would maliciously or my team would maliciously try to ruin your evening. No. Yeah. It's it like, how ah, we really got those fuckers. All yeah. right. So uh, we come want back you, next week. <laughs> you know how we get you is by giving you such a great time. You come to us 10 times a year. Yeah. That's how we've gotten you. That's mm-hmm. the type of get we want to get. Yeah. Um, but don't go home and write on Yelp. Don't go home and write on Google. Ask for a manager while you're here. Mm-hmm. Give us the opportunity to fix, correct the right, uh, fix the wrong. Mm-hmm. If we screwed up and we can fix it, we will. If we really screwed you and we did nothing after you talked to us, go home and bitch all you want. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of these people that go home and bitch, they always just see a corporate entity. They see the comic strip. They see House of Comedy. I remind people this all the time. We are a mom and pop shop. My wife and I bust our balls every day to keep this place open, surviving, and thriving. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're kicking back on the beach enjoying watching money pour in. That's not it. (laughs) We work our asses off. So when these people that come here that have jobs, and I'm the exact same. My wife's the exact same. And every time you take a shit on us because, you know, your nachos were a little colder than they should have been, Talk to us. I'd rather buy you a new thing of nachos or give you more food or give you some tickets to come to another show to say I'm sorry. Buy you around. We'll do all that stuff. Yeah. Just stop going home and texting to your four friends, you well, know? As unfortunate as it is, it's probably a reflection of other poor things going on in their life. And, and this is the one thing they feel that it's they, how have they, can to, vent. they have control over, yeah. right? I, I can't do much, but what I can do is go leave a real yeah. nasty review. And they just don't think about it. No, and, because even if they're just one person... I always say, again, I talked about me being the 10th the tenth exponential on stage. 
every one bad review to me is automatically times 10. Mm. And that's probably a really low number. But if one person is going to say that, there's always 10 people that will agree with it just yeah. because they're kind of cut from the same cloth, if you will. The well, same. there's no accountability that way either. But, like, what possibly could you bitch about, you know? Your food maybe took a little longer. Well, look at the setting. It was a little cold. Right, but people don't, or, though. you got to understand, yeah. people live in their bubbles. There yeah. could be 290 people in here and the table of four people sitting here. The four people are only concerned about the four people yeah. sitting here. Yeah. It's, it's when you go pay to be somewhere, you, you kind of expect that you're like, this is all about me. And that's unfortunate because and, it's really not. No, right? but and we try to still cater to guests in that respect. It's very important yeah. for us for people to come here and think that, not think. I mean, it is. We always talk to our customers about trying to create what I've uh, I've coined a wow moment. Mm. And a wow moment to me isn't like good service or bringing the drinks fast or bringing the food. F- that is your job. You should be doing that regardless. It's expected. What I'm saying a wow moment is is if you're walking by a customer who might not even be in your section, it might not even be your person, but you notice that their jacket has fallen off or their purse came yeah. off the back of the chair, and you bend down and pick it up for them and put it back, that to me is a wow moment. Yeah. Those are the kind of things that I remember from restaurants and little things like that. Mm. Food's supposed to be hot, fresh, and timely, and the drinks are supposed to be cold and tasty. That goes without saying. That's not a wow moment. Yeah. A wow moment are the little things, and that's why our big concentration here has always been the show, like mm-hmm. you talked about, you were here for Brendan Schaub and thought the drinks were coming out a little slow, and now you recognize why or what it might be. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, also, when we first met, you didn't sit here and say, hey, Rick, by the way, I think you should know the drinks came out slow. You started talking about Brendan and Brendan's show. Yeah. So ultimately, our focus is what happens on that stage in front of that mic. Because 100%. if you're having a great fucking time and if our comics are doing their job, that's going to buy me some latitude and some leverage when your <laughs> yeah. drink comes out 10 minutes slower than it should have been. Yeah. And believe me, again, do you think I want to get the drink to you 10 minutes late? No. Of course. If I get it to you sooner, Turn you're going to drink baby. it faster it and go. get another one. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all so, about the time management. So, yeah, uh, I just urge anyone who's listening to this, and not just my comedy club and not just comedy clubs, any hospitality-related venue – I promise you, even the shittiest ones out there, there is nobody who's intentionally trying to screw you. 100%. You might go to a place where they only have two employees and the ownership's not there and you have two 15-year-olds taking care of you and it goes shit. That's because it's two fucking 15-year-olds. That's why it went shit. I mean, at the end of the... bucks an hour. Right. But don't be pissed off at an owner who, believe me, is trying to make sure you have a good time. There's not an owner out there that is that indifferent. No one wants to see bad reviews on Yelp or Google or anything. Nobody. It doesn't fit your business model if you want people to come back in and have reoccurring customers, yeah. having a dissatisfied. But it's easier to get on your computer or go on your phone as soon as you're on in the truck on the way home after you left the show 10 minutes early because you were offended about some you know joke that wasn't your style. Uh, and that's the other thing that happens to us too. So you know how people leave reviews on Google or Yelp. You're leaving a review for the business, but they're going to leave a review for the totally. one show that they saw. I'm like, you're not understanding the review process here. This isn't a place to come review the show. You want to review the comic, go to the comics website and tell them what you thought of them. Mm-hmm. But when you give a comic two stars because you thought he was too edgy and you're 65 years old and you decide to give him two stars, one, you've just hurt my business, probably taking some money out of my kids' mouths. But at the end of the day, um, I mean, it's just, it is so counterproductive. It doesn't do anything good for anybody. Don't just interview. If you're going inter- to comment on the club, comment on the aesthetics of the club, the food, the beverages, what have you. If you want to say something about the show in it, so be it. But it can't be what reflects your star choices, whether it's two, three, four, mm-hmm. or five, the show. Because our shows change every week. You can't come in and review us on a show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, I mean, you guys put on a hell of a show here. I'll say that from experience. And uh, Appreciate that. And we put a awesome lot of effort. Host for the show and today. We really appreciate you having us here. My pleasure. I hope I didn't go too – we probably went a little too long-winded I, for you. This will, have, be, this will be a bitch to cut. No, no we have we no preconceived. You don't cut? No, nothing. One shot. We, we go how it goes. We've had, you know, two, three – I had a two-hour interview with Adam, yeah. his partner, who uh, is involved in making cocoa and ice guardians and all that stuff. We just go how it goes. Like, and we love hearing stories. Everyone wants the reality, right? Yeah. People don't want it cut and, and condensed. They want to hear the whole, the whole thing. So, no, this is great. And I just wanted to be respectful of your time because, you know, we said an hour and we're running about one and a half. No worries. It took, it took me a little while to get started because I wanted to figure out a bit about uh, what you guys were doing. So, hopefully, the angle we took today covers everything you guys wanted to uh, you, cover. You in and of yourself is what we wanted to cover, and, and we certainly did that. Because right. I'm sure you can appreciate now that I pointed out that I would have been diagnosed with ADD, I think the way I even even have conversations as proof of that because I mean the it's way high tempo, it hey, you, ca- you cut this for us you cut this enough for us it's perfect good there you go <laughs> all right man thank you so my much. pleasure thanks to all you beautiful listeners out there and huge thanks to Rick for hosting us at his spot the comic strip in West Edmonton Mall uh, if you guys get a chance make sure you check the place out they've got shows every night of the week and they bring in some huge headliners on the weekends so you can check it out at thecomicstrip.ca Thank you to this episode's sponsor Talus World of Science Edmonton home of the Canadian debut of Marvel Universe of Superheroes This exhibition runs until February 17th so you just got a few more days uh, and it's got some of the coolest artifacts costumes, props, interactive elements from the Marvel Universe I'm a huge superhero geek and uh, I think what Marvel has done with their movies over the last decade has been simply outstanding so um, you know, even if you're a passive comic book fan or Marvel movie fan, you got to go check this place out. Talus World of Science always puts on a great show, and Marvel has been at the top of their game for over a decade now, so know it's going to be good. Buy your tickets today at TalusWorldOfScienceEdmonton.ca. See you guys next time. Bye, everybody.